1: Hi, Lorne here. I just wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about a project almost as near and dear to my heart as ChangeLab. It's my new book, Make to Know, which is coming out in October and draws from many of the insights that have emerged from my Change Lab interviews. Make to Know is based on hundreds of hours of conversations with artists and designers who insist that creativity isn't necessarily a vision thing. Rather, it's a process of braving the unknown en route to discoveries that come from making itself. For fans of the podcast, the book offers the perfect complement to my interviews for Change Lab, exploring the transformative moments that comprise a creative life. Make to Know will be available for purchase online and in your favorite bookstores starting in early October. I look forward to continuing our exploration of the lives of people who makes stuff, and the beauty that comes through it all.
2: You want to have like a work play balance right so let's say like being in the studio sitting in the control room that's going to be work and then you leave you go on walks you go to dinner with people and i've had moments where i was so obsessed with the album that i was making that everything else turned into like how can i use this to like make better art the moment you actually let go of that stuff and just enjoy the beach enjoy your walk and forget about the work
1: that's when the idea is gonna come knocking and say, oh,
2: hey, you were looking for me.
1: You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Okay, great. I think I'm actually gonna
2: use like a distressor because it's a pretty tight, I think I wanna like, I think this and this just kind of fade over top of that. And
1: oh, this isn't supposed to be there. <sighs> Damn. Mike Shinoda is an art center alum and artist whose list of achievements is mind-boggling. You probably know Mike best as the driving force behind the alternative rock band Lincoln Park. Mike's exuberance and originality has inarguably fueled Lincoln Park's commercial and critical success landing it among the 21st century's top selling bands. But that's not all there is to Mike. Far from it. His prolific solo endeavors include a Grammy-winning collaboration with Jay-Z and his emotionally charged 2018 album, Post Traumatic. All the while, he's continued to build a diverse body of work as a visual artist who has designed album covers and merchandise and exhibited his paintings in major galleries and museums. But it's also worth noting that Mike brings a quality of attention and intention that is at least as impressive as his creative versatility.
2: So this was this little plucky
1: sound. Ooh. That's interesting. In our conversation, he also opened up about his use of doodling to access certain parts of his creative brain, and about the Twitch channel he's created to make things from scratch in real time, often in collaboration with his audience. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Shinoda.
2: I'm just going to move this real quick. I want to this in this snare. Okay, here we go. From the top
1: Mike Shinoda, it's such a delight to see you and to have this time to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this.
2: Thank you for the time, Lord.
1: We're trying to focus on the idea of making and this for this season of the podcast and what making reveals really is what the interest is. I have a, a book coming out called Make to Know, in which I actually explore the idea of how artists and designers work, what the making reveals, as opposed to, you know, a sense of some great vision that an artist tries to manifest that happens beforehand. So it's the engagement that becomes the really interesting piece of it. And as such, I've always been really curious, and here's where I wanna begin with you, to ask you about your song, Make It Up As I Go.
2: Yeah, so that was on a solo album called Post Traumatic. And this song actually started as a demo years before uh, with an artist named Kay Flay really smart person, friend of mine, we started writing this thing and it it didn't come together for the album. And I revisited it in, you know, some around whenever I was writing Post dramatic 2017, 18. I think the lyrics just struck me more. Like it was like coming back to something And and when you had originally worked on it, you partially understood what you were making. Mm. And then I came back to it later and went, oh, I fully understand what this is right now. It really applies to my life right now. And the concept was really just, Kind of like if you've ever had a feeling of like really knowing your direction or your purpose or what it is you think you want to make, if you ever have that feeling and it's a hundred percent clear, then whenever you feel like, I don't know, 10 percent clear or you feel 90 percent unclear, that's a very jarring feeling. And it's for so much of the time when I was making music, I feel like it's been this this roller coaster of like not being able to see what it was I was doing. And then everything clears out and there's a direction and I can follow that. And I think that's that's a pretty standard thing for a lot of creators. One interesting thing that pops into my head in relation to that is the idea that I don't feel like I'm like always just generating myself from scratch. I don't feel like I can logically assemble a great song or a great piece of art or whatever. Like there's always a part of it that's illogical and ephemeral and that it's almost like it's being channeled. And my best work has been when there's a really nice balance between those two things. Like there's got to be a lot to the creation, like to the song or the art or whatever, that felt like, how did that even show up? I didn't, I don't even know where that came from.
1: So this notion of of feeling like it's channeled through you is really interesting. And just to probe that a little further, artists and designers talk to me about they have a question or they have a notion or they have an urge. And they, just as you were saying, it's kind of unclear, Mm. but that they go into the process of the making. They go into the process of creating something even though they're not exactly sure where they're going is that resonant with what you're talking about
2: i feel like different types of successful creative projects require different type of thinking so for example one of my favorite linkin park albums that we did was called a thousand suns and a thousand suns was was in its creation process was this meandering exploratory crazy process. Like it was as close to uh, insanity as I've ever felt. Like it's, I just felt, there were times I felt like, how long have I been sitting in this room and where did these sounds come from? Like Hmm. it was just running noises through other noises and boxes and guitar pedals into other outboard gear and tweaking sounds and making weird stuff. And all of a sudden arriving at something that felt like it was resonating. Like it had a, the right energy to it. And I would have never been able to logically arrive at the place where it it was starting to be good. It had to be like losing sense of reality a little bit. In order to make that album, doing a lot of that, and then let's call that your right brain activity. And then at a certain point using your left brain to kind of try and organize it and put it into a format that people could like listen to and understand. To me, that's one of the more interesting creative processes that I've been a part of, like whenever that is the method to arrive at something. To me, that's, personally, that's the most fun. But I've done what, other ones that are like also fun and just like there's less mystery to it. I did a, the theme song to a TV show called Into the Badlands. I also scored a kind of a cult favorite martial arts film called The Raid. And both of those were very, there was an element of like unpredictable, you know, alchemy to it, but it was very small. I felt like it was very strategic and just listening and watching and being in tune with what the thing was and logically making a good musical backdrop for the thing. And both of those did, fans love them, people love them. It's like, both were on in their own right, like, successful projects it's just totally different way of approaching them
1: right though both i would suggest have some level of improvisation involved i mean improvisation i would think functions in the making at some point or another Yeah. Would you say that's accurate?
2: There is an element of improvisation going into making that stuff. Yeah, there's definitely an element of like doodling and like literal doodling and then mental doodling and sketching as well. And then, yeah, obviously in music, I mean, that's how I come up with anything is to kind of improvise my way to it.
1: Right. I actually heard somewhere that wonderful concept that you said of you call them musical doodles. Mm. And I love it. That's a way of improvising. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I think most of my writing is done that way. Yeah. I have a Twitch channel. Okay, guys, we're back. Twitch.tv slash official Mike Chanel. <laughs> Roughly three days a week, 10 a.m. in the morning, I go on and I make things from scratch. We're back. It's Tuesday. Is it August 17th? It's August 17th. Back, doing the thing, playing with sounds. So that'll either be drawings or most often it's music. And they're not things for release, really. They're just things, they're just doodles. But you get the sense of the improvisational backbone of the thing. Got my coffee ready to go. I got a little beat, I got some drums.
1: Um, Absolutely.
2: Maybe I like, maybe I don't like. You
1: know, watching you do these creating these pieces it's a wonderful insight into how you write songs and how you play but also how you collaborate with others too eventually
2: so if you tune into the live stream so these are the little drum tracks I got going on today I might just plug my guitar into a guitar modeler and turn the knob and it'll change guitar tones, or I might bring up a virtual drum kit in the computer just to put down some live drum tracks. Things like those, like if I was really in the studio going deep, I would definitely mic up live instruments and start to swap out different things and get just the right tone, just the right microphones, just the right snare, just whatever, all of those things. So for the sake of getting like something presentable in two hours, I skip all of that stuff. The other thing I don't do on the stream is vocals. So my vocal, my lyric writing process, my vocal process is like slow and cumbersome. <laughs> And I take my time with it and it, and I rewrite and I rewrite and sometimes it takes a long time. So I don't do that on the stream. I also feel like there's a magic to that that I d- wouldn't want to cheapen by doing it on a live stream. I think vocals are too special for that to me, at least for my channel. Shimmer or Super Massive? Let's see Shimmer, let's see what that does. Now I did some interesting things to this sound, so.
1: I'd love to get back to that making process that you demonstrate there and understand it uh, a little bit more in contrast to what you do when you're on your own or in collaborating with your band. But let's talk about lyrics for a second before we do it because you just raised that. And I'm interested in, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about what your process is with lyrics, how you get into it, how you start, how you explore, what the making process is for the lyric creation.
2: There are so many different ways to, to go about that. Sometimes I, I, a song, the whole song will start when I'm driving or when I'm in the shower or whatever and I'm just like a little line will come to me, like a little phrase. With or without melody. Sometimes it comes with melody and with chords underneath it, which is really... I don't know if I capture it in my head the way it comes in, but When it happens, I like rush to my phone and put it in an audio memo immediately. And I try and get into the studio to put something down as quickly, as soon as I can, just so I don't miss the momentum of it. The, the, the person who described this process most accurately to me was Elizabeth Gilbert, uh-huh. and she talked about how inspiration—you know—hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people were a vessel of like a like a um, a deity, a, a, deity. D- a muse, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Right. a tutelary god, and, yeah. f-
2: and you would be the vessel through which the ideas exactly. came. And the genius wasn't the person. The genius was the I- the idea, or the deity was the genius.
1: Right. You had genius. That's genius. what the word oh, meant. Right. The word meant right.
2: it, the non-human thing. And then eventually, the ego maniacal humans said, "I am the genius." And so the people became the genius. And the pressure of being that person who's coming up, conjuring the things from inside you, that bar is really high and can be a lot of pressure. But it's also, I relate more to the other version. It feels more accurate to me that it's like fishing. You make yourself present, you make yourself available for the idea to come, meaning you go sit in your studio or you sit, you go to the place where you create and you spend time there and generate a bunch of garbage. And then eventually you catch something and it starts to happen and you can feel the momentum and you ride that for as long as it will go. It's like, as soon as this starts to come together, you know it's happening. And you don't know how long it's gonna last, but it's great. So for me, the, coming back to the lyric part, vocals, when a vocal and lyrics and, and the song starts to come together that way, whether it's completely in my head or it's coming out of the speakers, I know, I feel that momentum, and I feel like I have enough experience at this point to stay on the surfboard, to have enough balance to ride it longer than I used to. For me, it used to be that I would really force, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell you a different thing. I mean, this is a different like chapter in this thing. Sure. We used to make songs, I used to make songs, track first, so bed of music, like really polished, no vocal, and then I would put vocals on it. And after our first two albums, our third album, we worked with Rick Rubin, who is one of my favorite producers of all time. I think Rick's the greatest producer of, of my lifetime, maybe ever, I don't know.
1: He just did that piece with McCartney, right? Three, two, one?
2: Yes, yeah. Rick's incredible, and I was so nervous to work with him. And he said, hey, I noticed that none of your demos have vocals yet, like, when do you get to vocals? And I was like, well, this is the process. And he's like, have you ever done songs that where the vocals came first, or the vocals came early? And uh, was thought about it I was like yeah he's like which ones so and I was like well in the end breaking the habit these are our biggest songs Of The band's biggest songs wow, were the ones that kind of like the lyrics and the vocals Mm -hmm. came with the thing, with the rest of it. And he's like, don't you think that makes a good argument for like doing the vocals early? I was like, yes, you're right. We're going to, I'm going to do that. Six months later, I was still not doing it. I, I don't know what it was about trying to rewrite my process. I had to like relearn how to write. And eventually I did. Eventually I was by the end of that album writing process, I was doing vocals and music at the same time. It would either come together or switch back and forth.
1: One would nurse the other, presumably,
2: right? Well, what but- happens is like, so... Let's say I start a song with track in the computer, okay? The track has a key, the track has a tempo. It's got an energy or a kind of like a, like an aesthetic to it. So hypothetically, here's what it is. The track is like, it sounds like Tim Burton. It sounds like Danny Elfman, okay? So it's creepy and interesting and cinematic. Let's say that's the kind of track I've got. And then I come up with a vocal, I sing it over top of the thing, and the song wants to be about how much I love my children. All of a sudden you're going to feel like I am a like psychopath if I'm singing those types of words over this creepy track, right? So what I would do in that case, let's say I came up with those words and I say, wow, I really feel like excited about these words and this melody. And I also like the track. So what do I do now? You know, I've gone from the music to the to the words and now I go back to the music and I probably just take the vocal and, and sing it over piano because then I can change tempo, change key, change chord. Everything then is very malleable. It breaks it down to it's almost like its simplest forms. I can make sure the, f- the song works in those forms and get as far as I can and come back to the track that I liked, come back to the melodies I liked and compare them with this thing that I know at its most basic, basic form works.
1: It's the most interesting thing in the world to hear a, a great artist like yourself reflect on that and how you go into a space where, I mean, the notion of that you have to make yourself available How many artists talk to me about the fact, it's like an active waiting or something like that. You're not being passive, you're actually making and moving things around and materials around, but it's in that that you have to engage and make yourself available. And similarly, the single most frequent statement made by the scores of artists and designers I've talked to about this is exactly what you said, I thought of the idea in the shower or I thought of the idea of driving.
2: Yeah, I think it's something, there's definitely something about certain places. For I have, a, I have a friend who's a rapper who writes most of his stuff on walks with no beat.
1: Right. The making doesn't always happen directly in the studio, mm. right? Sometimes it happens outside. There's a sort of spectrum of creativity. There's a different kind of place where, you know, something else can come in just because you're occupied or engaged in a different kind of way.
2: I know that uh, my, my wife is a young adult author, and she told me about Stephen King's book on writing. It's a very popular book for authors because he kind of describes his process and gives this like he makes some suggestions. I mean he tells you you know it, w- how he approaches the making. One of the things that he talks about is just is is setting a a dedicated time. actually I just heard Neil Gaiman speak about the same thing speaking of authors. He sits at a desk and the only thing he's got it's his computer and there's the window there's the computer to write with, there's the window to look out of at the trees nothing else no tv no phone nobody bothering him nothing and he doesn't he's not allowed to go online and research and what i think he said that if he does that it's limited in time but he's basically allowed to either stare at the trees or he's allowed to write and staring at the trees can only hold his attention for so long
1: and the key is to carve out the time to do it every day Right. There's a very funny story about, might be apocryphal, about Victor Hugo actually taking off all of his clothes and giving it to his servants, and going into a room stark naked to write, and making his servants promise that they wouldn't give back the clothes until he was able to produce the writing he was supposed to produce in that particular day. Yeah.
2: The thing that dis- it's the most distracting. I mean, the phone is so distracting, right? Yeah. I've been able at times to ignore it, but I do put it on silent take it out of my pocket and set it face down on the desk, like away from me. And also as I'm writing, like I said, the, the, the vocal part is the part to me that tends to be the more, to be more of a grind, but it's more, like if you don't have the vocal, then you don't have a song, right? So it's the most important part and it's the hardest part to do. And I find myself like sometimes looking stuff up, researching something, And really all I'm doing is like surfing the web. I'm browsing. Like I'm not, I've lost the plot. Mm. And that's a tough one. Like it's, it's as a modern writer, lyricist, you know, and anything that requires like being near a computer, you really have to be disciplined about not going off track.
1: And yet I I wonder about, I mean, if the distractions are out of balance, then it's a problem. But there's some place, I think, for the distraction or there's some place for doing something else that triggers something in us. You know, it can be thought about as part of the making in an interesting way. The the key is not to let it get out of whack or out of balance.
2: You want to have like a work play balance, right? So let's say like being in the studio, sitting in the control room, that's gonna be work. And then you leave, you go on walks, you go to dinner with people, you go, I mean, I go to shows, I go to, you know, I would go do other things and, I've had moments where I was so obsessed with the album that I was making that everything else turned into like, how can I use this to like make better art? Like I'm at the Hollywood Bowl watching the Philharmonic thinking like, what can I learn from this to put in my album? I'm at the beach going, what can I learn from this to put on my, it's like, no dude, go. you're at the beach, enjoy the beach. (laughs) Like that's, (laughs) I think when you let it's it's, and it's a very like a common trope that like the moment you actually let go of that stuff and just enjoy the beach enjoy your walk and forget about the work that's when the idea is going to come knocking and say hell oh, hey you were looking for me weird that's the 808 the drum sounding.
1: particular song, and the vocals are are absolutely relevant here, that I wanted to ask you about um, is the song Kenji, which I find incredibly moving. It clearly gives important voice to your father and your aunt, correct?
2: Yeah, it's kind of just my, it's a few, it's a bunch of my family members. My dad, he was one of originally 13 brothers and sisters. Parents immigrated over from Japan to California, so I kind of generalized.
1: Is it their voices that appear in the song? Your your dad
2: and your aunt? The actual interview footage is my dad and my aunt.
1: I wouldn't want this interview to, or this conversation to happen without my asking you about this, you know, and maybe that could be an example of how, you know, the vocals and the lyrics were developed. It clearly gives voice to a very important story and history and part of who you are. But I'm also curious about its creation and what it ultimately meant to you personally going through it.
2: The funny thing was at that time, Linkin Park had just done So our our debut album was on the billboard charts for like almost two years or something. I mean, like it was the best selling album on the planet that year. We followed it up with an album called Meteora, which did very, very well. It was almost like the second album was just to say like, we can do it again. And we did, and it was a a huge success. It was like a huge relief for us in a sense. Um, But we did tour heavily. At one point we had played 300 shows in the span of 365 days to give you an example. we Did like a a remix album in between and we did a EP with Jay-Z called Collision Course. So after all of that, everybody kind of like needed to take a breather. And I went home and I, I was like, those albums were very much about like mashing up all of these different influences that we grew up on. And I wanted to go back further and just play around with some rap songs, not genre bending or whatever, just like make rap music. And I didn't really intend to put it out, but the more I made and the more people heard it, the more excited I got, the more excited they got. And and I ended up making this album under the name Fort Minor. At one point I had this beat. I think I was inspired by, there's a Jay-Z and Biggie song called Brooklyn's Finest. And it has a weird measure structure. Like what you're used to hearing in most popular music is four, four time, four, four counts per measure and four measures per bar or whatever. And this one had something weird at five or something. I love that. Like I made this beat that had an odd measure and I I did it so that the rapping would work right over it. And for some reason, when I started writing to it, what came out was like this very, what started to come out in the very beginning was like this very personal story about my family during World War II. My family, uh, my dad's family as Japanese immigrants, they started in the US. I think, I don't remember what my my grandfather's first business was, but he basically, he built up this little general store. He lived in like kind of like central California, had this little general store, and then they added on like a barbershop and then they added on a gas station and then they added on a pool hall and all of a sudden he's like he had this very successful business in the center of it's near Fresno basically
1: and this would be like the first second decade of the 20th century probably 30s Well, 20s and 30s we'll okay. say 30s we'll say 30s. Uh-huh.
2: so he gets to this point where he in the late 30s he's got this very successful uh, store he's got like a dozen children then Pearl Harbor happens and the US decides that they are putting all of the Japanese Americans on the West Coast in camps. And right. so the entire, you know, up and down the coast, everybody of, all the Japanese people, but even people they, they thought were Japanese, they, they, they were incarcerating Koreans and Chinese because they looked Asian, like they didn't even care. So they took all these people. My, my family got taken from their home Left all of that. They got taken and put in horse stalls at the Santa Anita racetrack until the camp was built in the desert. And then they got shipped out to Post in Arizona and put in these wooden barracks for the remainder of the war where they had like machine guns on turrets pointing in instead of out. And that's how they lived until the war was over. My dad was like four. My dad was the youngest. He was, he's the second to youngest of the kids. And my aunt who's on the song is the oldest of the kids, basically the two sides of the, the kids. And she had a lot more perspective, but she, in Japanese American culture in California, like who went through that, they do not talk about it. It was impossible to get stories out of any of my relatives, much less my aunt. They have this saying, "Shitkataganai," Kataganai, which is like, it can't be helped. It's almost like a shoulder shrug, very different from other, how other cultures react to that type of thing. When they got, by the way, like just to finish off the family history part of this, when they got out of the camp, my aunt's husband died at the end of the incarceration in the camp. He didn't make it out. Um, other family members, like a couple of them went into the service to prove that they were Americans. And then everybody, when they came out, that huge family business that they had you know, started was completely decimated. Most of them ended up picking strawberries in the fields. Like, they went right back down to, like, minimum wage as low as you could go.
1: It's incredibly powerful. Thank you. It's incredibly powerful. And every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm deeply moved. And it kind of lends itself to an, another issue I'm curious about, and that is it's one thing to get into this process of composing or writing and making to discover that musical piece, to discover that novel, whatever it might be. But there's also a way of making, too, that lets us really know ourselves and come to know ourselves. You know, the writer Joan Didion talks a lot about this. And in fact, she wrote The Year of Magical Thinking, I don't know if you've ever read that, to grapple with the loss of her husband. And then she wrote a companion piece called Blue Nights for the tragic death of her daughter and the unbearable pain she was experiencing. And it was the creative process, it was the writing itself that helped her access her thinking, uh, helped her work through her grief, helped her understand something about herself that she couldn't have understood or wouldn't have been available to her except through the making. Mm. And I'm wondering how that resonates with you and how your own creative life has given you an access to know yourself, know your thinking, know your heart in ways that might not have been otherwise available.
2: Well, I usually tell people, at least for my songs, I mean, it's, there's so many different types of art you can make, so many different types of songs you can make too. Some of my favorite things that I've made get to the nucleus of an idea or how I'm feeling about something in a way that I couldn't do in a description like this. Like I couldn't, I couldn't put together sentences that would accurately depict some of these things maybe it's just me like maybe it's just that it, to my ear and 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 m- emotionally when i hear it it captures the the ness of a thing but even if it is just me, like, isn't that the point? Like, I think like a lot of young artists, they're so used to the call and response of social media that there's a reliance on that verification and that, that, that yeah, the attention, the, the feedback. For me, the, the pivotal moment where I realized that I, it would be catastrophe to live that way. After Hybrid Theory, our, first, our very first album started doing so well, And then I realized, okay, well, here's what that means for, you know, we have to have something after it. The bar is high. And what made this record like resonate with so many people? I don't know. I know some of it, but I couldn't like, there's no formula to it. Like it just appeared. I realized that like, if I make a song, because this has happened before, I've seen myself do it. I've seen my bandmates do it. I've seen other people do it. You make a song and you go, people are going to love that. But the problem is, when I find myself saying that or hearing that, I know that what is underneath it is, I don't really love it. I don't even know what I think of it. Other people are gonna love it. I couldn't live with that song, with that kind of album or that kind of creative project because I have to stand on stage and sing it day after day. I have to look back at it. It's it's gonna be on my Wikipedia page, you know?
1: I guess the question comes down to, don't you think that your audience, your listeners resonate your work because on some level there's something honest being communicated whether you're doing that consciously or not but that the making process is drawing something out of you something honest something that you may not know or maybe even discovering in the moment i mean there's this there is this wonderful moment where uh, rick rubens is talking to mccartney in mccartney 321 and says you know part of what we respond to is that there is an energy, there's an experimentation, there's something happening in the making of it that gets communicated to the listener somehow. And that's a very kind of honest, human, active process that's going on.
2: Yeah, I, I've always gravitated towards more substantive music. Like I always loved the sound of NWA and that was fun to listen to because it made me like it made me laugh in some cases and it made me feel it's like a voyeuristic kind of fun thing. So they were literally talking about crashing cars and being horrible to people. And as a little kid, you're like, oh, wow, that's like really crazy. I can't be- it, was, it was just like it's Andrew Dice Clay. It's like, I can't believe they said that. Right. Right. I love that for the entertainment value of it. But when it really comes down to like, wow, this song moves me, always an element of honesty. It was a different kind of I can't believe they said that. It was an. It was a kind of. I, I can't believe it because I can't believe they broke it down to its smallest molecule. It's usually that there's a truth to it. Like you're getting exactly. to a core truth, right? Exactly. And I think that's really what you're searching for when you're writing something. Is you're looking at like it's almost like really intense therapy or something where you go, okay, I feel this way. Why do I feel this way? Well, because these things are happening or happened or I'm reacting to well, why. And everything why, 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 until you can't go any lower and you get to the one thing and you go, oh, that's why.
1: Right, exactly. And I guess I wonder whether that search, that why, why, why is a, an ingredient in energy in addition to what you've actually find in, in the process. And it can only come through the making of
2: it. I, we always use the like most ridiculous analogy. We always use food in my in my band because so much music is junk food. It's like candy and it's desserts, soft drinks. It's it's like. Do you remember the Pepsi Challenge?
1: I do. So
2: the Pepsi Challenge for anyone listening who didn't rem- doesn't remember it is they the pe- Pepsi realized that if you let people have a sip of Coke and a sip of Pepsi, the majority of the people chose Pepsi because I think it was sweeter. And then I think what they realized, what probably Coke realized, is that if they drank the whole can, people liked Coke better. In music, what you get is this like these little jingles, these little things that they're so catchy and they're so sticky. They're fun for like a little time and then they go away and who cares, right? It's one hit wonder kind of thing, but it's crazier now because it's like TikTok dances and TikTok songs and memes and whatever blow up a song for a moment because it's got that stickiness and that sweet jolt of whatever it is, adrenaline or interest. And I've always gravitated to music with substance rather than the candy. Like I always really liked songs with some meat to them.
1: So to ask you about another issue here, you know, this uh, podcast is called Change Lab and our mission statement at Art Centre now is learn to create, influence, change. And I'm always really curious, and I've asked a lot of guests on this podcast about their sense of what change means to them. Because one thing to have it in a mission statement is another thing to really explore. What do... What are the various artists and designers that we engage with, who teach, who are art center students, who are alumni? How, how do they think about the change they, they make in the world? And I wondered how you would answer that question.
2: I think our collectively, the band, I think we did more things in terms of, uh, to like address uh, issues of change or philanthropy. We did most of that work outside of the music. So the music was always more about connection. Right. It's almost like this is the thing that's going to get you in the building. This is like we're going to put our stories and our perspective out into the world in the form of songs and other things, videos and visual art. And if you identify with that, you come in the door. And then we did we we've we've had a, an organization called Music for Relief that um, it started off as actually the, uh, to provide relief to victims of natural disasters we added on an environmental um, awareness component to what Music for Relief uh, does. Did things, we did things like like planting a tree for every ticket sold and stuff like that. And when I look at all that stuff, I go, that was, I'm glad, I certainly am glad that we did all of that. And I think that maybe more important than the actual effort itself, more important than like planting a tree for a ticket, maybe the thing that was more important was actually bringing the issue to the fan to put it in their mind. I mean if I step way back, the band's been a very well rounded experience that's much more than just putting out, you know, music.
1: Well, I wanna say for sure that part of your philanthropic giving and orientation has been to support students at Art Center and that's been incredibly, incredibly meaningful to all of us. I wanna publicly thank you for your generosity and maybe take the opportunity so students can hear this a little bit. About your reflections or your memories of Art Center and how it has stayed with you and what you learn continues to nourish you in your work and what place that experience of art center holds in your life at this juncture
2: one of the things that's the probably i'd say the most valuable thing that i got at art center was i learned how to navigate like a group creative process and to take criticism and to take ideas like challenging ideas more readily or more or easily like i always tell people i always tell people what, like when we're talking about creative process and listening to other people critique your stuff that we would you know spend 40 hours on a piece and then put it up on the board next to you know 20 other people and tell everybody why their piece sucks like it was right. a, it was rough like it was in some of my classes that's what it felt like and it was you know because it just felt that way because of the because of what i was good at or what my skill level was or interest was the other people in the class and that dynamic who was the instructor so on what was this the topic what was the, the subject yeah but i think I, I think like in the broad in the big picture art center really set me up for like being able to do the creative work that i do today whether that's like sitting down at a, at a at, in my studio by myself and making something that's ready for the world like that i can send out the door and feel like proud of and to work with the director of a movie who's got a vision and I'm trying to assist that person and they have opinions and the, and the, you know, movie executive has an opinion and the, all of these other people have all of these uh, criticisms or other ideas and how to navigate that. And in a way where it's worth doing and it's at the end of the day, you everybody's glad they did it and that the, their job feels Their job is more than a job. It feels good. It feels like purpose. And it feels like we're making something that people are going to care about and that we care about. I come back to that stuff all the time. I mean, that's like every, you know, every project I do that, Mm -hmm. that the stuff that I got in college is there at the foundation of like how I work.
1: Beautiful well mike i I've asked you about maybe uh thirty percent of the questions that I had, but I've so enjoyed this conversation thank you for for your participation thanks for your thoughtfulness for your honesty for and for all your good work i mean really it it inspires all of us and it's it's very meaningful to see you in your life and in your career and in your artistry doing what you're doing and making the way you're making and having the and influencing change in the way you do. Um, so it's a it's a great it really is a great pleasure to be able to sit and chat with you like this. Thank you.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Changelab.